Uh, every year around uh, Thanksgiving, I pull out my uh, journals and my um, teachings from the past year, and I, and I begin a time of uh, reflection on the on the year behind the the lessons uh, that I've learned, the things that God's taught me, and and okay, now I, maybe I didn't realize He was trying to teach me that way back then, but I see it, and I kind of pull some threads together. And, and so today the teaching is going to simply be, if I had to give it a title, I'd t- uh, title it um, uh, Live and Learn, uh, the things I've learned over 2007, and hopefully it'll challenge your, your thinking and, and we'll go there. But before we uh, get into that, I, I, I want to say two thank yous. Uh, first of all, a thank you to everybody who participated in the Christmas Eve gathering. We had a great afternoon uh, together. It was fabulous as you came up and shared your, your concepts of peace. And so thank you for making that such a, a great experiment, such a great success. We really appreciate that. And then secondly, <clears throat> I want to say thank you uh, to those of you who uh, uh, took us up on the tithing experiment, who said, okay, we're, we're going to do that. And we showed you from God's word that the only place God ever says, uh, test me in this is with our money. And said, hey, why don't you just try it? Let's, let's see if, if God doesn't do something in your life. And so at the first gathering, I said, if, if, if you've done that and, um, you know, you've got a story to tell me because God's faithful. He said, test me in this and see. And if you've got a story about what God's done, uh, let me know. And so that offers for you as well. And so after the gathering, somebody grabbed me and said, hey, this needs to be uh, anonymous. But, but I want you to know I tried the tithing experiment. Uh, I did it, and uh, the week after I did it, I, I got a brand new job at $3 an hour raise. Wow. Test me in this and see, God says. And so they were just, they were just amazed at God's faithfulness. So uh, I don't know who gives what in the life of our church, but as the offering uh, has come, come in and I see the weekly uh, totals, I, I do know that the last two weeks uh, offerings have increased. And so now uh, you've taken God up on it. So I just wanted to say a, a word of thank you to those of you who've done that. And I encourage you to continue to test God in that, that area of your life. Also this morning, before we get rolling, I wanted to tell you where we're going over the next uh, several months. Uh, starting next week and for the four weeks of January, uh, we're going to be doing a, a series that I'm simply calling Choices. Um, we all face them as 2008 comes, and so we're just going to talk about choices. Uh, week one, we're going to talk about pre-choices. Uh, week two, we're going to talk about bad choices. Week three, we're going to talk about big choices. And week four, uh, we're going to p- talk about daily choices. And so we're going to do that, and then that will take us into February. And then that first Sunday of February, um, we're going to do an introduction to Lent. Easter's early this year, so Ash Wednesday is February the 6th. And so we're going to do, uh, before that, uh, Ash Wednesday, we're we're going to do an introduction to Lent, and we're going to have some, some resources that we're going to do together as a church. And one of the things I'm excited about as we move towards Easter is our, our Good Friday gathering. Uh, on Good Friday, uh, we're going to have the cross up here. And, and the theme for this, this Lenten season, for this Easter season, is going to be Goodbye Egypt. Um, those things that keep you in bondage, those things that, that just hold you back, those things that you're holding on to. Uh, this, this Easter, this Lenten season is going to be a time for you to, to say goodbye to those things, to find freedom from your addictions, to freedom from the things that, that enslave you. So on Good Friday, we're going to have the cross up here, and we're going to invite you a part of the Good Friday service. We're going to invite you to bring something that is symbolic of the junk you're carrying around that you want to get rid of. And we're going to ask you to place it uh, here at the foot of the cross. And then you're going to come in on Easter Sunday, and it's going to be gone. Because that's what God does when he takes you out of Egypt. So, so that's where we're going over the next several months. That'll take us uh, to April, and then uh, we'll keep going through the year. But I just wanted you to kind of have a rhythm for where we're going over the next few weeks. Uh, I'm excited about both of those upcoming series uh, as we uh, go forward. So um, I told the first gathering, uh, I've got several 
pages of notes more than I normally bring with me because I, God taught me so many things. So I'm not exactly sure where we're going to go over the next few minutes. I got a rough idea, but I want you to pray for me right now that uh, in these moments that I'll be able to share the things I need to share and that everyone in the room will be able to uh, take something with them. So would you pray with me? Uh, God, thanks uh, for all the things you've taught us uh, in this past year. I pray now that in these minutes as uh, I put these thoughts together and have so many different directions to go that you would that you would take what uh, I've prepared and do what only you can do with it anyway. God, that you would take it, that you would apply it to our individual lives, that you would help us uh, understand uh, that this day each and every one of us could maybe look back on 2007 and say, yeah, I, I heard God there, that, that maybe today we make a commitment that before the uh, ball drops on New Year's Eve that we'll, we'll spend a few moments uh, reflecting on the things that you've taught us. God, I pray that as we look at these things, you'll, you'll challenge us for 2008. Uh, that we will follow hard after Jesus and that we'll be excited about it. So God, whatever you want to do, would you plant something deep inside each of our minds, deep inside each of our souls um, that we just need to think about uh, that you're going to use to to bear fruit in our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If I had to boil down the the essence of of what God has called me to do as as one of the people that gets to teach into your life, as as maybe one of the people that you subscribe to my daily uh, devotional that I send out, if I could put together the essence of, of what I do, what it is I'm trying to accomplish. In 2007, God showed me very clearly that it, that it needs to be twofold. And first is that I need to encourage you along your journey to every day to see the divine in the daily. That every place you look, God is there. That God is there. He, he's trying to teach us. He's trying to, to show us so that every day you see the divine in the daily. And secondly, I'd encourage you every day to listen to your life. That every day you need to listen to your life. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people who've been following Jesus for a long time. Maybe let's say they've been following Jesus for 25 years, but they don't have 25 years worth of experience. They've got one year worth of experience. And for 25 years, they've repeated that same Christian experience over and over and over again. Nothing's ever fresh. Nothing's ever new. And they're just like, well, this is how you live the Christian life. Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is is writing to those that are uh, following him as he's leading them out of uh, Egypt. and, and And he says this. He says, remember what you have learned about the Lord through your experiences with him. And so I want to challenge you. What experiences have you had with God in 2007 that you need to stop and remember? So today, I'm just going to share with you some of mine, and you'll hear some of these themes, and you go, like, oh yeah, we talked about that in our, in our gatherings. But I want you sometime before 2007 ends to stop and take, take this word of God very seriously. Remember what you've learned about the Lord through your experiences with him. How have you experienced God in this past year? What has he taught you? Have you learned that lesson? Are you looking for the next lesson that he's trying to teach you? And so uh, we're going to do that because these, these truths have just kind of woven themselves into the fabric of who I am. And so we're just going to go from there. The first one that I want to share with you uh, today is very simply this. In 2007, I learned that uh, following the wild goose is the only way to fly. We talked about chasing the wild goose, and we said, now this is going to sound sacrilegious at first, but one of the things I learned in preparation is that uh, our Celtic brothers and sisters had this, this almost, what seems to us, a sacrilegious way of referring to God as uh, the Holy Spirit as the wild goose. And said so he's going to lead wherever he wants to go. And so uh, in 2007, I, I figured out that I learned that that is the only way to fly. And in that series, one of the th- two, two things underneath that that I learned is, first of all, that God is predictably unpredictable. God is predictably unpredictable. Uh, If you want to make God laugh in 2008, can I encourage you, uh, tell him your plans. (laughs) Yeah. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in planning, and I think failing to plan is, is planning to fail. And I think Winston Churchill was right when he said, uh, planning is important, but plans are useless. The ancient poet, the ancient songwriter, the ancient wisdom writer in the book of Proverbs put it this way. In, a heart, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord orders his steps. In other words, you may think you know where you're headed in 2008, but if you're following Jesus, you could end up anywhere. And so the question becomes, are you willing to let God be predictably unpredictable in your life? It's not that God's inconsistent. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not inconsistent. What he is, but, but one of the ways he's the same yesterday, today, and forever is that he's predictably unpredictable. Look at the way Jesus dealt with people all throughout his ministry. He never dealt with two people in exactly the same way. He never called two people to exactly the same task. He's predictably unpredictable, and we need to get comfortable with that. The, one of his closest followers, a man named John, put it this way. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I don't know about you, but in 2007, I learned that there was a whole lot of my life that, that liked the predictable and the familiar. And 2007 in my life was part of God stretching me and saying, hey, Tim, I am predictably unpredictable. Oswald Chambers put it this way. He said, to be certain of God means that we are uncertain in all our ways. We do not know what a day may bring forth. So as we enter the new year, I I have plans. I have dreams and I have desires. But in actuality, I have no idea where I'm going to end up. And I'm okay with that. I couldn't have said that at the start of 2007. But in 2007, I learned that God is predictably unpredictable and following the wild goose is the only way to fly. Underneath that also, I want you to realize that the only certainty is uncertainty. I learned that in 2007. The only certainty is uncertainty. This came forward in my life as, we, as we've been wrestling and praying with and, and laying out the vision for Miami Valley Community Church for the biggest little church in the world, that we wanted to become a, a church that creates reproducing parishes of between two to 300 priests and prophets who are committed to helping people find their way back to God. And we said, we're going to be one church with multiple parishes. And I, I, I put that vision out there and, 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 and I, ooh, I struggled with that. And after I did it that, that Sunday, I, I wrestled with it, and I went back into my study, and I'm like, did I just do that? Really? That's out there now, and so uh, we're really going to need to do something uh, with this. And so let me share with you uh, that afternoon's um, entry into my journal. Here's what I'm learning about stepping out in faith. I almost always second-guess myself. I have to make the decision to get out of the boat, and every time I do... I have second thoughts. I've wondered if it was a mistake. Does God really want me to get out of the boat? I wonder if Peter second-guessed himself. He lost focus. He looked at the wind and the waves and started to sink. Maybe when I lose focus, I lose faith. I wonder if God really wanted me to get out of the boat. And as I was wrestling with that, that Monday morning, um, I picked up a book off of my shelf that I am sure was written just for me. I'm not dedicated to in the front of it or anything, but I'm just sure it, you know, it was written for me. And in it, the author says this. He's talking about seasons of uncertainty in your life. He says this, There will always be an element of uncertainty. Generally speaking, you're probably never going to be more than 80% certain. Waiting for greater certainty may cause you to miss an opportunity. Most of us want certainty. That's why we love 100% money-back guarantees. But the problem with that is this. 
There is no such thing as risk-free faith. Uncertainty is a prerequisite to faith. Don't wait for God to remove all the uncertainty. Realize he may actually increase the uncertainty and leverage all odds against you just so that you know in the end that it wasn't your gifts but his power working through you that fulfilled his purpose in your life. And I sat there and meditated on that for several moments in my study, realizing that the only certainty is uncertainty. When it comes to stepping out in faith, I think we need to be willing to to take that step of uncertainty. And I want us to go there as a community of faith. And so I hope that in 2007, you'll follow the wild goose. You'll chase him, that you'll be content with uncertainty, that you'll, be predict- that you'll understand that God is predictably unpredictable, which leads to another huge lesson that I learned in 2007 was simply this, and we talked about it before, playing it safe is risky. Playing it safe is risky. Remember the story of Peter when he, when he, when he got out of the boat and, and the Lord was walking by and, and he said, uh, hey, it's me, don't be afraid. And Peter said, Lord, if it's you, call me out onto the water and I'll walk to you. And, and Peter got out of the water uh, got out of the boat, onto the water, and then what happened? He started to sink. I, one of the things I learned in 2007 is that I've been way too hard on Peter. I think Peter gets a bum rap. At least I've given Peter a bum rap for most of my adult Christian life. Peter, Peter gets a bum rap. He, well, he, he's the guy who started to sink. Yeah, but everybody else was sitting in the boat. They were playing it safe. Peter took a risk. Peter, Peter gets a bum rap. Uh, he's the one who denied Jesus how many times? Three. He's the one who denied Jesus three times. But nobody else was close enough to get caught denying Jesus. Peter took a risk. Everybody else played it safe. Peter gets a bum rap. He's the one who took the, Jesus is about to be arrested. He takes the sword out and he swipes off the servant of the high priest's ear. He's so impulsive. He's, you, you, you can't control him. He's a loose cannon. Nobody else came to Jesus' defense. Everybody else played it safe. Peter was the one who was willing to take a risk. And this continued throughout um, their lives. I want you to turn to John 21. I want you to see this. Peter was the one who was willing to jump out of the boat. And he continued. John chapter 21, uh, Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to the disciples in the upper room. He's come back. He's appeared to Thomas, and he's, he's making several appearances. And now we find Jesus uh, appearing to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee on the shore. And they're out there fishing, and they hadn't caught anything all night. And from the shore, he yells out, hey, have you caught anything? And they don't know it's him. They're like, no, we haven't caught anything. And they're like, he's like, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, and you will. And so they throw the nets on the other side of the boat. They start to catch this huge number of fish. And then John looks at Peter and says, hey, that's the Lord. And look what happens. Verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat. We've got work to do. And yeah, they had to haul the fish in. But Peter was so excited when he knew it was the Lord, both the first time when he stepped out to walk on water, and this time he wasn't even planning on walking on water, but he couldn't wait to get to Jesus. And he jumped out of the boat, and Peter gets a bad rap. Here's what I've come to learn in 2007. Sinking is better than sitting. Sinking is so much better than sitting. You have a choice in 2008, get out of the boat, 
Take a risk. Play it safe. We, we've got a choice as a church. It, it would be nice to, to play it safe and just keep on doing things uh, like we're doing them. And, hey, uh, people are taking the tithing experiment and, and more money's coming in. So, so, so let's just keep things nice and, nice and good here. Or we can take a risk and do what God's really called us to do and start a second parish in 2008. Playing it safe is risky. During 2007, one of the books I read was a book about a, an explorer named John Muir. He was the founder of the Sierra Club. Uh, one of his biographers says this about him. Muir tramped up and down through our God-created wonders from the California Sierras to the Alaskan glaciers, observing, reporting, praising, and experiencing, entering into whatever he found with childlike delight and mature reverence. He was the explorer extraordinaire. One of the stories that's told about Muir is he's uh, away with a, a friend in the Sierra Mountains on a December day. There was a huge storm that was coming in that was going to keep them in the mountains for some time. Muir decided that he wanted, uh, he wanted to experience the storm. So instead of staying in the cabin, uh, he got up, he found a mountain ridge, he, got, he climbed to the mountain ridge, and he found the, the tallest Douglas fir tree that he could find. And he climbed to the top of it, and there at the top of that Douglas fir tree, he rode out this amazing storm. He says this, I held on for dear life and rode out the storm. I wanted to experience the full effect of the storm, the sights, the sounds, the scents. I relished the weather. I enjoyed its rich sensuality and its primal energy. I see the picture of Muir on top of that Douglas fir tree in the Yorba River Valley as a picture of the choice of the Christian life. I think for so many of us, it stands as a rebuke against becoming a mere spectator to the things of God. It stands as a rebuke to those of us who prefer the creature comforts of life rather than creator confrontation. And I think we have a choice to make in 2008. We can step out of the boat or we can sit. We can go out of the cabin and climb the tree or we can stay safe. In 2007, I learned that playing it safe is risky. My friend, the bottom line is this. The center of God's will is not a safe place to be. It is probably the most dangerous place in the world. However, to live outside of God's will puts you in danger. To live inside of his will makes you dangerous. Which would you rather be? Which would you rather be? So 2007, I learned that playing it safe is risky. And when it comes to serving people and, and loving people and, and ministering to people, underneath that, one of the things I learned in 2007 is, let me put it this way. Sometimes when I look back over my life, some of the things come to me that God's teaching me in like little phrases like that, playing it safe is risky. Other things come to me at certain times and they're more like commandments. Thou shalt or thou shalt not. And so a couple of the, the thou shalts that came to me this year when I was thinking about playing at risk was, was the first one was this, thou shalt touch lepers. Thou shalt touch lepers. As you study the life of Jesus, why is it that the Pharisees wanted to crucify him? I think it was because Jesus didn't fit into their nice, neat, perfect little religious categories. He was way too unpredictable. He was countercultural. He was counterintuitive. He was revolutionary, and they didn't like it. He healed on the Sabbath. He hung out with tax collectors. He ate with prostitutes, and they didn't like it. Jesus wasn't just outside of their box. Jesus smashed their religious box to smithereens. 
And one of the things that Jesus did is he touched lepers. Now, it was a religious no-no. According to the law, you don't touch lepers. But uh, Matthew records for us, Matthew chapter 8, that one day, uh, suddenly, Matthew says, a man with leprosy approached Jesus. Before I keep going on uh, touching lepers, can I hit pause? For those of you that find yourself in leadership positions, in, uh, this is probably the biggest leadership lesson uh, I learned over the past year. And it's the lesson of approachability. Have you ever noticed how comfortable people were in approaching Jesus? It's amazing, isn't it? The woman who'd had the issue of blood for years and years and years. If I could just get close to him. Parents bringing little children to sit on his lap. Prostitutes crashing parties so they could anoint him. Four friends making a hole in a roof just to get their buddy to Jesus. And this leper suddenly appearing. I, I think this leper, this leper was probably stealth-like. Because there were always people around Jesus that tried to keep others from getting to him. And this leper, no, I, if I could just get to him. Jesus was incredibly approachable. His holiness didn't scare people off. His holiness, he wasn't holier than now. He was like, no, come. People wanted to be around Jesus. That's why 101 times in the ministry of Jesus, the word crowd appears. Because people were attracted to him. They wanted to get close. He was approachable. Uh, maybe I shouldn't share this with you. But I want to share with you the greatest compliment that I got in 2007. And it was from somebody that wasn't part of our church. And, and they said it to me and I, and I went and I wrote it down. Um, and I've kept it uh, very visible for me. And the compliment was very simply this. Uh, you don't seem like a pastor. I loved it. I don't know if it's the red shoes the, the Birkenstocks, that I, wear, I don't know. And I, please don't get me wrong. I, I, I value and honor the pastoral position. It's a God-ordained office in the life of the church. And people need someone to call pastor. But I want to be touchable. And in 2007, and I want to be approachable. Uh, it's, it's the reason I, I don't mind wearing jeans to the office or red shoes on the stage. Here, here's the bottom line. In 2007, God just reinforced this about uh, who I am. I've learned that people identify more with my weaknesses than my strengths. I've learned that people identify more with my failures than my successes. I've learned that I need to be authentic about my struggles. Uh, too many of the pastors I know and too many of the pastors I grew up with uh, like to hide themselves behind the pulpit. Friends, I'm not embarrassed to tell you I believe living life that Jesus way is the best possible way to live. I don't have it all figured out and I am a work in progress. Now, as soon as I'm omniscient, I'll let you know that too. <laughs> I'm a work in progress. And in 2007, that had to be okay. And as a, as a leader, whether you're in your family or in your business or, or wherever you find yourself around people, let me, let me just tell you to, to, to maybe think about the fact that God want, wants you to be approachable. I learned that so much in 2007. So Jesus heals uh, the leper, but he touched him. I think that's amazing. He was willing to break the law and he touched the leper. And as much as I want us in the next months in 2008 with what we're doing with these different parishes, we've got to get higher tech in what we're doing. I want us as a community of faith to understand that even more than that call, God's call on each of our lives and our call as a community of faith is to be higher touch. How, how long had it had been since this leper had been touched by a human being? I don't know. He was, he was willing to forsake his quarantine just to be touched by Jesus. 
How many people around you just simply need to be touched? We need to become higher touch. And when it comes to touching people and serving them, this is another lesson I learned in 2007. <clears throat> um, almost always, when you wash somebody's feet, <clears throat> their feet are dirty and smelly. And Jesus said, wash one another's feet. This is the example I've given you. Nobody else wants to do it. Uh, somebody else should have been hired to do it, but I take on the form of a slave. And Jesus came around and he washed dirty, dirty smelly feet. He was willing to touch lepers and he was willing to wash dirty, smelly feet. He rolled up his sleeves. He got his hands dirty. It wasn't a, it wasn't a job he should have had to have done, but he did it. Predictably unpredictable. How about you in 2008? Who is it that God's calling you to serve? I would imagine <clears throat> that the people God's calling you to serve, there's going to be a level of proximity. You've got to be close enough to touch them. You've got to be close enough to wash their dirty, smelly feet. Another thou shalt thing that I learned in 2007 was this. It might sound kind of weird. Thou shalt crack the whip. What are the image, when, when you think about Jesus, what are the images that first come to your mind? Chances are, when you think about Jesus, some of the images that come to mind are some of the ones that are portrayed on the stained glass around this room. We'll skip over this one because I'm still not sure who this guy is. Um, but but uh, maybe it's the gentle Savior knocking at your door. Hey, open up. A soft, gentle tap. Maybe, maybe it's the gentle shepherd holding you as his lamb close. Maybe it's the image of our, our Lord Jesus kneeling in the garden praying. What, what are the images that, that come to mind? In 2007, God just, just had me focus in on a different image of Jesus. And it's one I wasn't real comfortable with. And it's one, to be honest with you, I'm still wrestling with. Um, it comes from John chapter 2. It's... It, this image of Jesus doesn't always fit my character of who he is. Uh, in, in this image of Jesus, there's fire in his eyes. His, his jaw is set. There's intensity on his face. I'm, I've been working on a teaching that we'll do sometime um, in the, I don't know, it might be 2009 as I've looked at the calendar before we get to it. But, but I call this passage in John chapter 2 uh, the divine temple tantrum. Here he comes in and people are, are just, just abusing his father's house. And he makes a whip and he drives them out of the temple with, with anger. He chases them all out. And you know, watch out Indiana Jones because here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. Most of our images of God are too tame. At least mine were in 2007. They were too tame. They're, they're too civilized. In 2007, the, the lion from the book, The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe about, about Aslan just really resonated in my heart. Um, it says safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Our images of God are too safe. I came across this quote as I was developing this theme in my life about a, a God who was too tame. It's from Dorothy Sayers. I put it on the screen for you. To do them justice, the people who crucified Jesus did not do so because he was a bore. Quite the contrary, 
He was too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have declawed the Lion of Judah and made him a house cat for pale priests and pious old ladies. Ouch. I'm not sure exactly how to say this, um, but I think Jesus was competitive. As I was rethinking the, my images of Jesus in 2007 and this, this image of this fierce, uh, whip-cracking Jesus, I think he was competitive. I, I'm not saying that he played, you know, peewee football or t-ball or whatever, but, but I, think, I think he had a competitive edge. And here in this story, I find Jesus competing for his father's house. He competed for the things that really mattered. He competed for the things of the kingdom of God. He was willing to take a temple, a whip, and drive people out of the temple. He was, he was willing to condense their nonsense and say, get out of here. He was willing to compete for the things of the kingdom of God. For me in 2007, as I've gone back and reviewed all the things that God's taught me, it's boiled down to two things in my own life. There were issues of, of sanctification and there were issues of stewardship. When it comes to sanctification, I've told you before, I am incredibly competitive. I don't like to lose. On the Wii? At Candyland? I don't care. I don't like to lose. And there's, by the way, I'll hit pause for just a minute. There's this nasty rumor floating around out there that um, I'm on the Wii disabled list. <laughs> that, that I sustained an injury playing Wii over the Christmas holiday. Um, it's true, so um, <laughs> just, just so you know. But, 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 but I don't think God wants to eliminate my competitive streak. God wants me to love him with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. In 2007, here's how I define strength. Blood, sweat, and tears. Am I competing enough for the kingdom of God? Do you remember in the parable of the talents when, when some, one was given one and one was given two and one was given five? What was the reward for being faithful? The reward was more work. It wasn't an early retirement. It wasn't a day off. It was, hey, you've been faithful with this. Now go do more. And so in 2007, I, the, the question that haunts me is very simply, have I been competitive enough for the kingdom of God? And I learned this lesson. Uh, like I say, there, there are themes as God starts teaching me, the things I'm reading. And then I find myself uh, shooting baskets with my daughter in a gymnasium, shooting free throws, not making very many of them getting frustrated because I can't shoot a basketball like I used to be able to shoot a basketball. And I'm, and I'm sitting there and, and thinking, why is this? And, you know, it's, well, yeah, you're getting older. But I began to reflect on it. I remembered that there were at least 10 years of my life, at least 10 years of my life, where two hours a day, every day of the week, every month, every day of the month, every month of the year, two hours a day, I was playing basketball. Because I, I, wanted to, I had one of those coaches that's like, um, you need to be the one out there practicing when, you're, when, you're, when your opponent, you know, he's at home sitting on his couch. Because that's when you're going to get better than he is. You, you don't have the luxury. I, I wasn't, uh, you know, gifted with just natural ability. I had to work at it. So I worked at it day after day after day, two, at least two hours a day, every day. And the question that haunts me from 2007 is, was I as competitive for the kingdom of God in 2007 as I was competitive when I used to play basketball? And on my good days, I'd like to say yes. But on the majority of days, as I look at 2007, the answer has to be 
Probably not. Probably not. And I think God wants us to compete for the things of the kingdom. Matthew put it this way, from the time of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Competitive. Underneath that, another thing that I learned is that I have to stop playing defense. I have to stop playing defense when people criticize, and I've had my fair share of criticism in 2007. I've got to stop playing defense. Uh, Everything I've learned about pastoring, I learned from coaching third-grade girls' rec basketball. Not really, but I learned a whole lot about pastoring and dealing with people. And one of the things that frustrated me to no end when when coaching third-grade girls' uh, basketball in the rec division was simply this. I believe I spent over half of my time on the bench simply yelling out onto the court, no, you're on offense now. You're not playing defense. You're on offense. No, you're trying to score. You're on offense. And I wonder how many times God feels like he has to look at us like we're third graders playing rec basketball and say to the church, you're on offense for goodness sake. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell are a defensive mechanism. They're not needed unless somebody's rushing, unless somebody's trying to ram it down. The gates of hell are on defense. It's a requirement of the church to be on offense. And I wonder in 2007 when God looks at Miami Valley Community Church, he looks at my life specifically and he says, you're on offense. Quit playing defense. I don't know. Maybe. Just maybe. Uh, Is anybody else tired of the church in America being known more for what it's against than what it's for? That's defense. And our defense has become very offensive. I think it's time we become offensive players. I think there are two kinds of people when it comes to the kingdom. I've learned this in 2007. I think there are doers and there are criticizers. Uh, Jesus was a doer and the Pharisees were criticizers. On one occasion, uh, Jesus healed a man with a withered arm on the Sabbath day. That's a good thing, right? To heal somebody whose arm's been withered and restore it to wholeness and completeness. Well, the Pharisees didn't like that and they, they, they chastised Jesus. Why are you healing on the Sabbath day? You read that story and it's interesting. I just love how scripture is so alive and so full of stuff. Uh, after they criticized Jesus for healing on the Sabbath day, you know how they spend the rest of their Sabbath? Plotting his murder. So evidently, it's okay to plot murder on the Sabbath but not heal. There are two kinds of people. There are doers and there are criticizers. Uh, The Pharisees had had this unusual ability to find something wrong with something that was so right. Jesus' life and ministry. You've heard the quote. Let me read it to you one more time. It's from Teddy Roosevelt. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who have never known neither victory nor defeat. We have a choice to make in 2008. Play it safe or take a risk. Crack the whip. Compete for the kingdom or say it doesn't really matter. 
I don't know about you, but 2007 taught me that I'm not going to let anybody keep me from radically loving those people who don't know Jesus yet. I'm not going to let anybody, I'm not going to let any criticism change who I am. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not above criticism. I've got places to grow, and we as a church got places to grow. Please don't hear me saying that. But what I am saying is this. We have to be faithful to do what God has called us to do. And I am who I am, and uh, I refuse anymore to be defensive about that, about my teaching style, about my leadership style. Be the greatest freedom. Here, 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 I guess bottom line, here's what I learned in 2007. Uh, the greatest freedom is having nothing to prove. It's just so freeing. And so uh, I want us to take some offense. We're on offense. A couple more and we're done. I promise. Uh, maybe these will help. Uh, one of the things I learned in 2007, a little formula came up with was very simply this. Uh, change of pace plus change of place equals change of perspective. If you find yourself in a rut, if you, if you find yourself living out of memory instead of out of imagination, if you're trying to, trying to figure out how to, how to shake things up, let me encourage you, change of pace plus change of pace equals change of perspective. May, uh, the scriptures say that Jesus got up early uh, before it was, was the sun was up and, and went away to a lonely place to pray. He changed his pace. He got, a, got away from people and he just stopped and he prayed. So you're looking for a change of perspective in 2008, maybe before this year starts. Let me encourage you to, 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 to shake it up a little bit. And you don't have to spend a lot of money on, a, on any kind of fancy vacation, just, just a little bit of a different place at a different pace and your perspective will change. I, I am... I am sure of it. I'm absolutely sure of it. As I was going through that in 2007, um, one of the things I figured out was this. The pace at which I was doing the work of God was killing the work of God in me. The number of nights I spent away from home and justified for the last 12 years as your pastor. Willing to meet anybody, anytime, anywhere. In 2007, I realized the pace at which I was doing the work of God was killing the work of God in me. And so I had to make some adjustments in my schedule. And so now, I have two days a week where I'll meet with people. I'll meet with you all day long, but only those two days. Those other days are devoted to other things, to to focus, to vision, to, to prayer for our community of faith. And, and folks, there have been lots of criticism uh, that I'm only available on those two days for those kind of counseling appointments. But in 2007, I realized I can't keep going at this pace. And so change of pace plus change of pace, place equals change of perspective. And so uh, I'd encourage you to uh, find the rhythm that works for you in 2008. Uh, two more. Uh, I learned in 2007 not to pray in vague terms anymore. A lot of my prayer life was really vague, and so I'd pray, and then I wasn't sure if God answered it because I couldn't even remember what specifically I'd asked for. And I think God wants us to pray specific prayers. And so we've begun praying as a church. We're praying for 10 community groups, uh, for 10 life groups to start in the Carlisle area before this, this uh, parish launch. We're praying for 100 people that are going to be committed to the Carlisle launch 
by the time we get there in August. Do we have them? No. Do we know where they're coming from? No. But are we praying for them? Yes. We're praying for $100,000 above and beyond our regular general offering that can be devoted to this Carlisle launch. We're praying specific prayers. And in 2007, I learned that we can't pray vague prayers anymore individually or as a community of faith. So what specific prayers are you praying? And then finally, this may be the most important lesson I learned as we look forward to 2008. It's simply this, that most of the time, a 1% investment can make a 99% difference. Maybe I could say it this way. Uh, commitment to the little things makes a huge difference. I, I, I figured this out as I was reading um, a story about, about a MIT a meteorologist named Edward Lorenz. In 1960, uh, Lorenz made an accidental discovery while he was attempting to develop a computer program that simulated and forecast weather. On the day of the discovery, Lorenz was in a hurry and he wanted to leave the lab because he had something else to do. And so he decided that instead of entering uh, point five zero six one two seven, the number that he'd used in an earlier trial, uh, he, he would just round to the nearest thousands, just save a little bit of time. So he rounded to point five zero six. As he tells the story, he says, I figured that a change of less than one one thousandth, uh, one one thousandth would be inconsequential. However, when he later returned to the lab that day, he found a radical change between the simulated weather conditions. According to Lorenz, uh, the numerical, <clears throat> excuse me, the numerical difference between the original number and the rounded number was the equivalent of a puff of wind created by a butterfly's wing. He concluded that a minor event like the flapping of a butterfly's wing could conceivably alter wind currents sufficiently to change weather conditions thousands of miles away. In 1979, Lorenz gave a speech to the American Association for the Advancement of Science titled, Predictability, Does the Flap of a Butterfly's Wings in Brazil Set Off a Tornado in Texas? I might like to listen to that one. The principle that he discovered there in his lab by accident was what is known as the butterfly effect. In writing about the butterfly effect, he says this, tiny differences in input can quickly become overwhelming differences in output. And my friends, I believe it's true in science and I believe it's even more true in life. Tiny differences in input can make overwhelming differences in output. What are the tiny 1% differences you need to make in your spiritual life on your input? Is it reading the Bible for another minute a day? Is it reading the Bible for a minute a day? Is it praying specific prayers? Is it taking God up on his offer? What are the tiny little changes that you need to make that are going to pay huge dividends? Because they do. So many times when we come to, to, to the new year and we come up with all these resolutions, we think about all these huge changes that we need to make, all these resolutions. And then by, you know, uh, the studies that I read, the statistics, you know, by Super Bowl Sunday, they're all done away with anyway, especially the ones about getting healthy. Because <laughs> Super Bowl Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday after all, right? Uh, we, the eating pattern goes out the window. But most of those New Year's resolutions by Super Bowl Sunday studies tell us have disappeared because we go into them thinking, I've got to make these huge changes. And I would submit to you that 1% change can make a 99% difference. What's the small little change that God's asking you? If I could summarize it, in two, if you don't know where to start, let me, give it, let me give you two. It's where I started. Would you intentionally make a change to see the divine in the daily? And every day before your head hits the pillow, would you listen to your life? 
and see what it is God's trying to teach you. God, um, we want to listen to you in 2008. I thank you for the things you've taught me in 2007. I thank you for the differences that you've made in my life. And I don't want you to stop. I, I want you to continue to change me. I want to be a fully devoted follower. I want to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to compete for the kingdom. I don't want to quit. God, I want us as a community of faith to be the kind of people who are intentional about touching lepers and washing dirty, stinky feet. God, I want us to follow and chase the wild goose be comfortable with the fact that you are predictably unpredictable. That the only certainty is uncertainty. God, we, we want to go hard after you. And God, we want to be people who pray specific prayers. And God, there's a whole lot of risk and a whole lot of uncertainty when we as a community of faith uh, start talking about and planning and, and getting intentional about a, a second parish in the coming year. Where the people are going to come from, where the finances are going to come from. Um, and we don't know, but God, we're going to start praying specific prayers. God, we are praying that over the next few months, you will put together enough people that, that by the time that parish launches in August, God, that there will be already 10 life groups up and meeting in the Carlisle area. God, that means you've got to raise up 10 leaders, and we're going to trust you for that. God, we're praying. That by the time that parish launches in August, there will be a hundred people committed to that parish. Priests and prophets committed to helping people find their way back to God. God, we're being specific and we're asking for that. And God, we're being specific. We are asking as a community of faith in order for that to happen. God, we need you to somehow provide an extra $100,000 to get this thing up and going. And we want to trust you for that. God, we're asking and we're trusting so God, whatever it is in our life as a community of faith, help us to follow the wild goose. Whatever it is in our individual lives uh, where we need to be stretched and grown uh, before the, uh, that ball um, reaches the end of its journey in 2007, may we take some time to listen to our life. And God, may we commit to following you wherever you lead us in 2008. That's going to be a great journey, and we're committed to it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And so brothers and sisters, as you listen to your own life, as you see the divine and the daily, uh, may you know the peace of God on your journey. And as you leave from this place, uh, peace be with you.